Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast with me, Sam Matterface, Talk Sports football correspondent Alex Crook and our European football expert, it's Kevin Hatchard. On today's pod, Thursday night fun with a soundtrack provided by The Who, substitute, probably apt, bearing in mind Chelsea bring on the kids and Manchester City bring on the match winners. Arsenal could have gone 10 points clear this week at the top of the Premier League, but their lead is cut to five. Everton and Bournemouth are in trouble, but not in as much trouble as Southampton. And Nottingham Forest are going to get out of it, you know. It's all on the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. And a big hello to Alex Crook and Kevin Hatchard. Hello. Uh, good morning, uh, Crookie. How are you? You okay? I'm good. Yep, very well. You're very um, busy, aren't you, this week? You've been doing uh, matches. You've done two live commentaries on TalkSport and TalkSport 2. But you've also been doing the White and Jordan show with Ali uh, Oladipo. And you've been uh, sleeping with Perry Groves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I woke up with a Perry Groves in my bed this morning. You've just missed him. So uh, that, that's something nobody wants to see on this podcast, to be honest. Could you explain a little bit more? Could you put context in that? Or is that just a regular relationship? No, don't let him do that. Let it just hang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let the listeners use their imagination. <laughs> maybe we don't want the listeners to use their imagination. In fact, maybe that's ruined their whole week. Um, Chelsea's week was ruined by their defeat against Manchester City. Look, I've got to be honest with you. I watched the game last night and uh, I thought it was very odd for Pep Guardiola to make the initial selections that he did Kevin but the difference was made when the changes came Chelsea losing more players to injury they've had a lot of problems with injury over the course of the season that's definitely something that needs looking at but when you're bringing on Chuck Wemaker Amari Hutchinson and Lewis Hall and Manchester City are bringing on Jack Grealish and Riyad Mahrez you know that there's a big problem and bearing in mind how much Chelsea have uh, spent over the course of the summer that's got to be a worry hasn't it? It's extraordinary how thin the squad looked. Um, I commentated on the game for TalkSport International and we looked at the team sheets and it's that commentator's thing where you look through the subs and think, I've not really heard of that guy in terms of I haven't seen him play. And then you, you were looking and I thought Amari Hutchinson did okay when he came on. Seen Lewis Hall play in the Youth Cup for Chelsea and seen him play uh, a little bit under uh, Thomas Tuchel. But you know, it shows you the injury problems they've got because Mason Mount was injured in training, picked up a knock this week. They lost two players in the first 20 minutes. Uh, Raheem Sterling went off virtually with the first action of the game. Uh, and then they lost Christian Pulisic as well. That said, there are still big issues there going forward. 
we talked before about the fact that it's not just the fact they're not scoring goals. They're not really creating chances. And I thought some of the attacking play was so one-paced against City, especially in the second half when the game was on the line. I know Lewis Hall had that chance late on and he ended up blazing it wide, but... Hmm. It was quite a tepid display going forward. And you go back, it's been an issue for well over a year in terms of creating chances, scoring goals. They averaged two goals a game in the league last, across the whole of last season. But it feels like those issues are embedded at the moment. And that's what Graham Potter's got to tackle. He's got to make Chelsea much more dangerous and unpredictable going forward. The issue is, is that you, know, you talk about the, the length of time that Chelsea have had problems with scoring goals. This season's even worse. I think it was a suggestion last night that Chelsea have scored 18 goals less than at this stage last season. I mean, I'm not entirely sure that can be true, but if it is true, that's a massive worry. The truth is they're not scoring enough goals. They don't create enough chances. They don't look like doing either of those two things. And when you look at the personnel that's available to them, you're scratching your head as to where they spent all this dosh on. Because Aubameyang came on as a substitute in the first half, might as well have not bothered and then went off in the second half as a substitute. We've spoken a lot this week on the show about recruitment and how important it is throughout the, the, the Premier League. And I know you're of the same thinking as me, Sam, that Chelsea's recruit, recruitment for a number of windows has been poor. And I think you're seeing that now. Um, I think Graham Potter needs at least this window and the summer to try and turn it around. Aubameyang has been a poor purchase, but there's no real surprise there because Mikel Arteta didn't want him at Arsenal. It was an odd move to bring him back to the Premier League. I think his best days are very much behind him. And you look at the the golfing quality between the two squads, as Kev said at the top of this piece, it, it, it's stark. I don't think Chelsea have got any chance at all of finishing the top four. They might not even finish in the European place. There's so much work to be done. But I don't necessarily think you can really lay the blame at Graham Potter's door. The tools he's been given are simply not good enough. But the Chelsea fans are doing that. And last night on the sports bar straight after the game, there was lots of people piling in and having a go at Graham Potter. If you look at his body of work as the Chelsea boss, do you think that he is going to be able to to, to survive this, this pressure, Kevin? Because we talked about this on the podcast, I think it was on Monday morning or Tuesday morning when we, we did the first podcast of the week. And we were discussing the fact that Chelsea's approach to the the way they manage their their coaching team, they want to change it. They want to be a little bit more patient. They want to build for the future. They want longer-term projects. We've seen uh, Benoit Badiashile join this week from Monaco and they've given him a seven-and-a-half-year contract. Chelsea now it's almost determined to sort of send this message that this is all for the long term. But can their patience extend to not being in the Champions League, not being even in the Europa League next season. It's got to. Otherwise, there's no point bringing in a project guy like Potter and then saying, oh, well, it didn't work in the first few months. See you later. We'll bring in the next guy. It just doesn't work. If if you're going to do that, you have to, to use Mikel Arteta's phrase, trust the process. However... It was interesting listening to Thomas Tuchel recently. Obviously, he would know better than most about Chelsea's boom and bust cycle. And he said, it's all very well saying trust the process and wanting people to come with you. But ultimately, if you don't get at least some of the results to go with it, people lose faith in the process and the whole thing falls apart anyway. So he hasn't got infinite patience, Potter. He hasn't got infinite time. And that's why I do feel bringing him in, even though I think he's a terrific coach. I'm a massive fan of what he did at Brighton. I think he's a really smart guy. I think he's a great coach. 
But this is the ultimate test because you're basically changing the entire ethos of a football club that's been in place for two decades. And you're saying, right, we're going to change the whole thing. It's a massive ask. It really is. It's a massive job as well. Uh, Kai Havertz's performance again coming under scrutiny. He sort of slipped into a number 10 position after being the point man uh, early on in the game. What does the future hold for him? I mean, Crook, you've often raised the question, what is he going to do? Where is he going to do it? I know Kev's a big fan. Where are we standing on Kai Havertz right now? Obviously, he's written his name in Chelsea folklore with that goal in the Champions League final. But for me... He just isn't good enough. Um, I, I know Kev will tell me he's being played out of position. That's yeah, probably he, he right. Can't, he can't be not good enough, is he? I mean, obviously, this is a guy who leads the line for Germany. He's played well in in German football. It's not that he's not good enough. Are Chelsea getting the best out of him? I mean, you know, this is a very talented player. You don't spend £72 million on a player if he's not good enough. I, I, again, it goes down to recruitment. It, I sympathise with Kai Havertz because he signed at a time when the country was in lockdown. I think that definitely had an impact on both him and Timo Werner mentally. But with the greatest one in the world, is he going to score the goals to fire Chelsea to where they want to be? It isn't going to happen, Kev. It isn't going to happen. I'm sorry. Well, look, look, he's 23. He scored a Champions League winning goal in a final already. He scored the winning goal in the final of the Club World Cup for what for what that's worth. He has scored brilliant goals for Germany. I thought he played okay for Germany, actually, at the World Cup. And he has been messed around. He's been put in different positions. He's had to adjust to a new league. He had COVID after he first arrived. That set him back. It was quite a, a hefty dose of COVID. And look, I'm not. he has not played in the way that I know he can play. I've seen him many, many times in Germany. Has he hit those levels enough? No. But considering he's had a relatively short career, he's packed a hell of a lot in already, scored that brilliant goal for Germany against England at Wembley recently. The talent is there. The quality is there. It's about the right coach getting the best out of him because I think there's still enormous potential there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, get what Crook's like. Unless you're scoring a hat-trick every game and getting 10 out of 10 performances, you're rubbish and should be discarded. Um, In which case, he would have got rid of pretty much most of the Manchester City team in the first half. Kevin De Bruyne didn't have a particularly good start to the game, for example. Uh, Manchester City didn't have a great start to that game. But tactical tweaks and personnel changes at the start of the second half certainly influenced proceedings. Rico Lewis being played in a midfield position almost changed the game, didn't it, Crook? Pep's a big fan of his, isn't he? You, you look at the Quite fact he's putting so. his faith in him at a time when Manchester City are trying to claw back this deficit. I think it's uh, it's great for the fans when somebody comes through the academy and gets the faith of the manager. And actually, I think we're starting to see the fruits now of Manchester City's academy. They've invested a lot, Sam, as you've told us before, uh, in youth development. So, you know, fair play that Pep is, is, is willing to put his faith in him. And, and I think in the second half... Manchester City were the dominant force. They deserve to win the game. And having said, well, a week ago that Arsenal were the favourites for the title, I'm now probably tilting back towards Manchester City. You'll, you'll be That's a record, that. isn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. Sometimes sometimes he can do a U-turn within 17 seconds. Um, although he has got a big turning circle. Um, yeah, Rico Lewis on him. Pep Guardiola said last night, the last games, Rico has the ability to make this midfield better. He has the ability to make the whole team better. He changed the game and it did, Kevin. I mentioned it earlier on. I thought it was a major influence on proceedings, but it was an odd selection in the first place, wasn't it? The way that he lined up, Bernardo Silva not playing as far forward as you would expect him to. 
Yeah, it didn't work. Uh, and you had Joao Cancelo very high up on the right. And he was getting into good positions, but messed up every time. The crossing was atrocious. We saw Belgium Kevin De Bruyne from the World Cup in the first half. Um, every pass under hit, over hit, just not quite accurate enough. Um, and it was a really poor per- performance, I thought, in the first half. The changes altered everything. Akanji looked much more stable in the centre of that rear guards. He's passing to the fore once again. And Lewis, you mentioned, I love that kid already. I mean, one of my favourite moments of the season already was the look on his face when he scored in the Champions League. Um, absolutely amazing to see the pure joy on his face. So uh, he's and, and he can play. And it's quite interesting. One of the big narratives about Manchester City this season has been, did they make a big mistake allowing Sterling, Gabriel Jesus, Sinchenko to go in the same window. I do think one of the reasons they've done that is to create a pathway for youngsters to come through because they haven't done that really. Phil Foden obviously came through, but he's exceptional. But if you're going to recruit the brightest and best from around the world, you have to be able to show them that they can get to the first team and improve and play. Because if you don't do that, you have a situation like you have with Jaden Sancho where he goes, well, I'm never going to play. I'm going to go to Dortmund. Jamie Bino-Gittens was another one. I'm not going to play, so I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to Dortmund. You have to prove to these kids that there's a facility for them to get through. Yep, he's uh, only 18 years of age. He comes from Bury in Manchester. He's playing for Manchester City. He's scoring Champions League goals. He's influencing big Premier League games. And uh, he is, uh, he, you know, he, he provided the knockout punch uh, last night by being the heart of that beat, heartbeat in that midfield. And uh, that's not a surprise, really. His dad owns a boxing gym. Uh, let's move on to uh, the other titled contenders who Crook has written off after a 1-0-0 <laughs> draw. Um, the first time that Arteta's side haven't scored in the Premier League all season, 17 games. Um, and obviously, you know, it's the first time they haven't won a home match at all campaign as well. But that means it's all over, does it, Crook? Just because they couldn't beat one of the informed sides in the country, no longer are they favourites for the Premier League. Well, I think in, in the eyes of the bookies, they've never been favourites for the Premier League. And yeah, but uh, In your eyes, playing. you were talking them up as favourites last week. They're favourites. They're going to go on and do it from here. This is where they should go and make their mark. And then one bad result. It wasn't even a bad result. They drew <laughs> nil-nil with a decent team. And all of a sudden, no longer are they contenders for the crown. That was partly to wind up the Arsenal fans because they're all being very <laughs> humble and saying, no, 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 we're happy if we just sneak into the top four. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see how they react from here because you learn more about players in adversity than you do in success. And you're saying it's only a nil-nil draw. Uh, but you could see the frustration. You could certainly see the frustration uh, on Mikel Arteta's face as he was parading around the touchline. I think that's a bit of a problem for Arsenal because I, I think managers almost mirror their players. And if your manager is losing his head on the touchline, I don't think that necessarily helps the players. So I think it was poor from him. I think if you rile up a manager as placid as Eddie Howe, um, then you've got a little bit of a situation on your hands. And they just, to me, ran out of ideas. Yes, Newcastle defended well, but Arsenal couldn't break them down. I think maybe there's a blueprint there for teams, particularly going to North London now, of how to frustrate Arsenal and how to wind up Mikel Arteta. I think they're going to drop more points. Not difficult to wind up Mikel Arteta. I remember going to a game at uh, Liverpool where his antics on the touchline actually inspired Liverpool to to start playing. They, they, Arsenal had the better of them for a little while and then 
after he got a little bit heated on the touchline. So did the uh, Liverpool crowd and therefore then the team. Um, he did turn around afterwards and say he was a little bit disappointed that Newcastle played that way. They haven't played that way for 17 matches, he said, Kevin, which is a surefire way uh, to suggest that you've been outdone by somebody else tactically. And he's talking rubbish as well. They've only conceded 11 goals. They've been excellent defensively. I mean, it's just garbage. And also, they carried a threat, I thought, at the other end. that They had moments, um, you know, once they'd earned the right to play, they started to do that. And I thought it was an excellent Newcastle performance. They had chances as well. Joe Linson had a great chance uh, that maybe he should have done better with. But I thought Arsenal were fine. I thought they were okay. I thought Erdegaard had some lovely moments. A goal to straw against Newcastle is not a big problem. In terms of Arteta, he's not going to change. That That's him. He's mega intense, mega demanding. I actually think part of the energy from the crowd, there's been a big shift at Arsenal in terms of the intensity of the crowd. Part of that, I think, is down to him. So love him or hate him, I don't think he's going to change. You can see why him and Guardiola got on so well at Manchester City, because they're both mega intense. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, last week, Marcus Rashford got told off for being late, but Manchester United seem to have timed their run up the table to perfection. It's going to be Ericsson to swing it in. It's aimed towards Casemiro, who broke that line, hit it on the volley, into the roof of the net, and it's been coming. Manchester United lead. That's the right guard, Nacho, into Luke Shaw. What a terrific goal! Luke Shaw starting the move finishing the move and scoring his first goal for Manchester United since March 2021. Fernandez into the area, there might not be one because Rashford is lurking. Fernandez has squared it, Rashford is there and for the first time in his career he scores four goals in four consecutive games for Manchester United. Terrific performance by Manchester United in large parts there and they've won by three goals to nil. I was at this one, a comfortable victory for Manchester United. They won by three goals to nil. I thought in the first half they were very calm, very composed and just edging their way to supremacy in the match. They got the second goal straight after half time, then became a little bit casual and offered a couple of opportunities to Bournemouth before uh, killing the game on the break late in the match. I spoke to Gary O'Neill afterwards and we'll get to Bournemouth in just a second. He seemed to think they played very well in the match. I don't know if he was doing a PR job bearing in mind that he'd slated his team at the weekend. But I thought Manchester United were in control right from the very beginning to the very end of this match, pretty much, Crook. It's getting boring, isn't it? Being a Manchester United fan, you turn up, you win the game, you climb the table, and then you move on to the next one. Um, it's, it's a bit of a throwback situation. But uh, <clears throat> I think you're right. that They were they were in control. C- composed is the right word. Casemiro, excellent in midfield. Again, obviously made some changes. Harry Maguire comes back into the eleven, which always fills me with a little bit of dread. But I think defensively, they were largely resolute. And, and Marcus Rashford gets his his trademark goal. I think he is officially now in the best scoring form in terms of successive matches in his career. I heard your commentary suggest that. So it, it was a good win. I, I thought Bournemouth were better than they were against Crystal Palace. They couldn't have been much worse, to be honest. And if you're Gary O'Neill, you have to cling on to those positives. But there was only ever going to be one winner. And we're starting to get a bit excited. Two big games to come, Man City at home, uh, Arsenal away. If they win those two, wow, 
Well, it could all come crashing down very quickly, couldn't it, Kevin? Because uh, as Crook has already alluded, they play uh, in the FA Cup. They could be out of that by the weekend. They could be out at the League Cup by Tuesday night when they play Charlton at home. They could lose no to Manchester chance. City in the, in the derby and then lose to Arsenal. So the whole season could come crashing down and then Crook would not be bored. Interestingly, he does get bored quite easily doesn't he? Uh, bearing in mind that he's been whinging and moaning about how bad they've been over the course of the season. They've only had an upturn in the last six or seven weeks. Um, but uh, they are playing well. And speaking to Eric Ten Hag, I think he's one of the reasons for that. Um, his calmness, his directness, his communication levels, the way he talks to his players, the way he outlines what he wants from them. And he's very clear, very strong and takes no nonsense, makes a massive difference to this group. And do you know what he is? He's honest. And you talk yes, to so, ex-players. So yeah, 100%. Because you talk to ex-players and a lot of them will tell you one of the things they prize in a manager is honesty. If I'm not going to play, tell me. And tell me how I can improve. If I've got a genuine chance of competing for a place, I need to know. If I haven't, I'll move on. And that that's a running theme. And I think with him, I think he's even down to how he's dealt with this Jaden Sancho situation, would have been very easy to hammer him publicly and say he's not fit, he's not ready to play, he's out of my thoughts completely. No, he went, look, he he needs time. We've sent him away with coaches in the Netherlands to work and we want him back as soon as possible. So even in that, the kind of gentle way in which he's handled that shows you he's an excellent man manager. Uh, I did enjoy him trying to write in pouring rain. That was very good, uh, trying to write notes uh, in midweek. Um, but look, I, I think he's terrific. I, I, I said ahead of the appointment he was a good coach. My fear was, ahead of him going to Manchester United, would he be given the authority and the scope that he needed? And to be fair, he has been. You know, he's come through the Ronaldo situation. They gave him license to put his foot down when necessary. That's worked out really well. And I think in many ways, that's been the making of him. Yeah, he said afterwards when I was speaking to him in the tunnel uh, that we have to go from game to game. The belief is growing, but don't get too far ahead. I think he was talking to Alex Crook. Um, It's only January, he said. Not even half a season. So it's difficult for uh, him to get carried away. He's quite a level-headed guy, unlike you. Uh, Mr. Crook. Um, But what are your expectations now for Manchester United? Are you expecting them to challenge for the title? No, I'm not. Let's be honest. Um, I I think at the start of the season, particularly after that Brentford debacle, if you'd have told me we were sitting here on the 6th of January and people like you would even be talking about the title, I'd have thought you were mad. Top four is what it's all about. I think they can challenge probably for third, maybe even second place. And lift a trophy, uh, winnable FA Cup home game against Everton. They're into the semi-finals of the Carabao, let's be honest. There's no chance that Charlton beat them in midweek. And obviously Ooh. they've got a big game to come in the Europa League. So uh, I think there's every chance that that trophy drought could be over this season. Yeah, looking forward to that Barcelona game in the Europa League. That's live on TalkSport as well. Um, I've been fortunate enough, actually. I've been, I've been deployed to every single Manchester United home game for the last two weeks and uh, I'm doing so over the next couple of weeks as well. Looking forward to the Manchester derby, which is live on TalkSport. That Charlton game is live on TalkSport as well. Crystal Palace uh, not having a great time at this moment and Tottenham have got out of their slumber, Kevin, with a 4-0 victory in midweek. Antonio Conte was the narrative prior to the game. He said well, maybe I need to learn a little bit more uh, and better English in order to be able to converse with you guys because you're all getting the wrong impression. I mean, 
he is a clever fella, but he is talking absolute codswallop, isn't he? He knows exactly what he's doing. He was winding everybody up and he was trying to get them into that sort of spiky mode so that they had a point to prove. Whatever for whatever reason, Tottenham cannot do anything in the first half of matches. I mean, there is there is seems to be this sort of idea that if they sit off and stay in the game and then strike second half, they'll they'll be better. But sometimes they get caught cold doing that. But they did strike in that second half against Crystal Palace. Didn't they? they did, but again, they put themselves at risk. You know, there was a big chance for Palace, and Hugo Lloris made an excellent save. Had that gone in, then that you was suddenly good of him, having... usually just chucks them in. Yeah, yeah, he's not been in the best of form, but that was an excellent stop and a really important stop because, again, you're in a situation where if they fall behind, they've still got a lot to do and that we're seeing that time and time again. That said, what we saw was the quality they have going forward. I thought Harry Kane was absolutely sensational, not just in terms of the goals, but in terms of his creativity. So dangerous when he drops into that 10 role. And Brian Heal was outstanding. Uh, And I think... He, I, I talked recently about them needing somebody unpredictable. Somebody, because it's all about pre rehearsed patterns. It's all about, you know, Antonio Conte's plan for getting through a team. Sometimes you need a guy who's got a bit of X factor, and Heal has absolutely got that. I, I mean, I thought he was sensational. The, the weight of the pass for Kane for the second goal, I thought was tremendous. And it's interesting they've been linked with bringing back Marcus Edwards. I think that's the one area, the forward line, that doesn't need work. Everything else does, but I don't think the forward line does because you've got. Richarlison when he's fit backing up Kane you've got Son you've got Kane you've got Heal you've got quality you've got Kulusevsky all that's fine it's all the stuff behind them that needs fixing Marcus Edwards almost scored the greatest goal in Champions League history against uh, Tottenham Hotspur when he was playing for uh, Sporting Lisbon uh, earlier in the season I was commentating on it for the world feed and I likened it to Diego Maradona's run prior to the second goal against uh, England in 1986. It was an absolutely unbelievable, unbelievable approach. He was so unlucky not to finish it. Uh, and there was part of me that wished, he'd, wished he did, because if he had it done, I mean, we'd have been talking about it for years and he probably would have earned himself a move well, anywhere he liked. Probably going to Barcelona or Real Madrid had he had finished that off. But um, they let him go. They let him go initially. They let him go for nothing. So yeah, it's their own fault for not spotting that talent. Uh, Palace did have a, quite a few chances in the second half against Spurs, but struggled to break them through. Um, it's been a, an underwhelming se- second season for Patrick Vieira, Alex. Yeah, I think the jury's out a little bit on Patrick Vieira, and it's not oh, just me saying go. that. He's had one bad result, and then all of a sudden he's getting sacked as well. <laughs> Vieira out, get him back. out. Vieira out. Arsenal, <laughs> get rid of Arteta. He's dropped. He's dropped two points at home for the first time this season. Go on, yeah, go on, yeah, yeah. sack Vieira. It's not just me saying that. There were whispers in the summer that actually the board weren't delighted with the job that he did last season. I know he stabilised him in the Premier League. He reached an FA Cup semi-final. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. on. He got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup. They completely turned the playing style around, despite the fact that he had 10 senior pros when he started in uh, the end of June. How on earth would they not be impressed with what happened? I remember looking at the uh, the results and thinking they're pretty similar in terms of the way that they finished the season in terms of uh, points and and uh, league position to what Roy Hodgson did. But as a Crystal Palace fan will tell you, when they had a season ticket watching Roy Hodgson's football, they just used it as a method to go to sleep early, whereas now <laughs> they quite like going to Selhurst Park. Why on earth would the board not be happy? I think the fans were happy. I think the board were hoping for a little bit more. Listen, you have to ask them uh, about their reasons for that and their ambitions. But 
I, I don't really know where to bracket Palace this season, to be honest. I, I'm looking at the league table. They're not, for me, one of the teams who will go down because they do have too much quality. I'm a big fan of Michael Lise in particular, um, but they're not quite in a position to challenge for a European place. I think the board would like them to be in a sort of Brighton stroke Brentford situation. At the moment, I think they're probably just a little bit below those two sides and maybe that's why they're they're asking for, for more. As I say, not my saying, I'm just relaying what I've been told. Well, you did initially start saying the jury is out on uh, Vieira and you're not the only one who's saying it's what you actually said. Now you're training your mind and saying, it's not me saying it, I've read it somewhere. Uh, Kevin, what's your <laughs> viewpoint on Vieira? I think he's done a really good job. I think to turn around the playing style in the time that he has is really quite remarkable to teach players a new method. I think it's difficult, though, because, you know, talk about Brighton, you talk about Brentford, years and years and years of recruitment. Uh, and and data analysis yeah. and infrastructure and you, you Chelsea know, could learn something from them. You would think. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. And I think actually that is the direction. I think in the end Chelsea will go down that kind of data led recruitment approach. But I think teams like Brentford and like Brighton are making it tough for the mid table to lower you know lower in the table teams because teams are looking at them and thinking oh well well they've done it why can't we do it it's really hard thing to do that <laughs> Brentford and Brighton are two of the best run clubs in Europe not just in exactly. in England in Europe exactly. so look if every season Palace finish mid-table for me is a massive success they have no divine right to be in the Premier League whatsoever and I think if Vieira can get them finishing in mid-table playing the style of football that they're playing great that that's what you're going for it's fascinating you say that because you know there was a lot of talk after the uh everton brighton game we're going to get to that in just a second uh that a lot of everton supporters quite rightly in in a sense you know we're asking how on earth are we in a situation where we're getting beaten 4-1 against brighton well the answer is pretty clear really brighton run their ship brilliantly and everton run an absolute dog's dinner of a business behind the scenes and that is the reason why Brighton are on the rise and Everton are on the fall. Brentford are in a similar sort of position. They've run their club very well over the course of the ten, uh, last 10 years. And that's why they gave Liverpool a scalling on Monday night. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18+, begambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Let's get down to business. The first live Premier League commentary of the new year. Brentford have been scoring goals for fun in their last few matches. Two against West Ham on Friday, two against Spurs on Boxing Day, two against City. Before the break, corner from Mbermo, into the near post. Oh, and it hits Demme, and it goes in. And Alisson can't get down to scoop it out. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain tries to get it out of his feet. He squares it towards Simakas, and it's oh. saved down low by David Rea. And it comes back out into the six-yard box, and it's scrambled home. Offside. But the flag is up for offside. Johan Visser, who come back from off the pitch, he was uh, flagged offside. So it's only 1-0. Down by Visser, and he shoots it into the net. There was a deflection on the way through, but Visser is celebrating. Oh, I'm not sure. I think they're saying there's an offside. Just 1-0 to uh, Brentford, although they've scored three goals. Onto Jensen, who's crossed towards the far post. Visser with a free header, and he's dragged away by the goalkeeper, but he's in. Goal given this time. Johan Visser scores. Brentford's home record, very impressive. Just one team have beaten them here so far this season. That's Arsenal. Oxlade-Chamberlain rises and glances the ball in beautifully. Stunning delivery from Trent Alexander-Arnold. Wormo is coming in from behind and he's beaten Canate to the ball. He's slipped it under the goalkeeper and in. What a fantastic result this is going to be for Brentford. 3-1 they lead. It was a terrible performance by Liverpool. Um, I think Brentford were brilliant and they should be applauded for the way they approached the game and by the way uh, that they ana- uh, analysed the Liverpool backline, especially from corners and realised that there was joy to be had. And boy, did they have some joy from corners, Alex. They bullied them. <laughs> and we've seen that from Brentford at home before. They did it against Arsenal at the start of last season. They did it against Manchester United at the start of this season. Uh, you'll hammer me because I've compared them to, to Wimbledon of the past, but I think there is a there is a similarity there. And actually, Kevin Campbell uh, agreed with me when I raised it on White and Jordan earlier this week. That's not to take away from what Brentford do. They are an absolute pest to play against, particularly uh, in their own backyard. I think Thomas Frank is someone who Brentford have done well to tie down because, for example, if Jurgen Klopp decided to leave Liverpool, I think he would have to be part of the conversation. I think he's an excellent manager. And they did it without Ivan Tony as well. And they did it without Christian Eriksen as well. And you look at the second half of last season without those two players, I think Brentford would have gone down. So clearly they've evolved as a football club. Again, we talk about recruitment. Their recruitment has been excellent. They're in a, they're in a great place right now. Yeah. Um, what's the problem with Liverpool? They've dropped 23 points this season, which is one more than the entire uh, of last season, Kevin. And they've considered more goals. They've scored less goals. They've created less chances. They've dropped more points, as we've said. You know, it, it, the, the, all of the statistics are pointing in one direction. Why? 
Yeah, huge issues. Uh, I do still think there was certainly at the start of the season a physical and mental hangover from playing every game it was possible to play, chasing every tournament or, or you know, league right until the end. I think also the disappointment of missing out on the Premier League title race on the final day and then losing the Champions League final, that's got to have an impact as well. But I think actually this is down to intensity. If you look at Liverpool and their successes under Jurgen Klopp, it's been about their work without the ball as much as their work with the ball. And I think because they're not putting enough pressure on the ball, that high line is being exposed. Jurgen Klopp's never going to change that. He's never going to stop squeezing the pitch in that way. But he has to find a way of getting more out of his team physically because that's what's really hurting them at the moment. And also missed chances. Um, they had some great chances early on. Darwin had that shot cleared off the line by Ben Mee. If that goes in, it could be a completely different game. And so there are big issues there. And what I think Liverpool fans hoped was that the World Cup break might be a chance to reset, but they're making the same mistakes as they were making before that break. Injuries have definitely played a part. Not having Jot is a big problem. Not having Firmino is a big problem because they're great without the ball as, as much as they are with the ball. So, yeah, big, big issues there. Crook, uh, Darwin Nunez missed a lot of chances, had a great opportunity ruled out for offside after a brilliant finish. Is he 2022-23's Timo Werner or is he a slow burner like Harry Kane? I think it's really difficult when a striker gets into a habit of missing chances and therefore the criticism comes his way. I think it was a, a pizza chain, wasn't it, that were mocking him not after. Well, actually, it was I after this game. I thought was a bit crass, actually, didn't yeah, you? Agreed. <laughs> I didn't, didn't think that was. I didn't think that was right. I thought. I, I don't. I don't know who decided to do that, but I thought that was. You know, I thought that was a bit. I mean, I mean, listen, it's marketing and whatever. I understand that people uh, have to try and be inventive and make a few headlines, and they did that. So well done to them for, for for getting a few headlines. But I'm not necessarily sure that it was fair either, because I think he's been he's scored, he's scored nine goals in his first eighteen games for Liverpool. Yeah, but he cost a lot of money, and uh, when you cost a lot of money and you're a centre forward you and you're playing for a club like Liverpool, uh, Dominoes cost a lot of money. By the way, they don't always deliver perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's got us talking. So actually, I think whoever came up with that is a bit of a marketing genius. There's a good player there, but at the moment he is judged on chance conversion and goal scored. And I think he's falling below the levels that Liverpool would have expected. Mm. Kev? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I look, you want him to score goals, of course, he's a centre forward. But look at the chaos he creates. Look at the yeah. pace he has. Look at what he does to defenders. Look how he brings others into the game. Um, there have been some really lovely moments of link-up between him and Mo Salah. Him I think Salah. that bodes yeah, well. Definitely. Yeah, that bodes definitely. well going forward. The, the guy is still young. Um, he scored so many goals for Benfica, so he can't be that bad a finisher. I think he also suffers from the fact that people have made this facile comparison with Erling Haaland. It's ridiculous because Haaland is a one-off. There's nobody quite like him in world football. You cannot compare Nunez to him. If you're going to do that, well, let's all compare everybody with Messi or Mbappe. It doesn't work like that. You can still be an outstanding player without being as good as Erling Haaland. So just because they were signed at the same time, just because they were both signed for big money, it's irrelevant. 
It's about what Nunez can bring to Liverpool. Yes, he can score more goals. Yes, he can look a bit better in front of goal with his finishing. But as you say, it's not like he scored no goals at all. He's got quite a few goals already. I think there's a really talented player there. It's like comparing Simon Jordan with Alex Crook, isn't it? I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's two different leagues. Um, uh, let's head to the bottom of the table. Leicester nil, Fulham one. Leicester struggling uh, under Brendan Rodgers. I do hope they get past Gillingham on Friday, uh, on Saturday, lunchtime, live on TalkSport 2. Uh, Leeds 2, West Ham 2. Good game at Ellen Road. Ellen Road, always a, an entertaining place to go, full of goals. Aston Villa 1, Wolves 1. I went to that game, did that for TalkSport. Danny Ings coming off the bench. A little mistake by uh, Jose Sargent allowed him an extra second to lift it over the goalkeeper. Villa poor in that game, actually, after a brilliant performance against Tottenham. I thought technically and tactically they got it all wrong. Crosses into the box when you're up against six foot five Kilman and six foot four Nathan Collins. When you're playing Ollie Watkins up front, Danny Ings then coming on, uh, Buendia being in up front alongside them. Sorry, ain't going to work, I'm afraid. Uh, it was meat and drink to Kilman, who defended brilliantly. Um, and it was only a mistake, actually, that led to the equalising goal. They ran out of steam a bit. Wolves, after uh, passing the ball around brilliantly in the first 45 minutes and dominating that game, they're certainly on the up, I think. Uh, But uh, Leon Bailey's miss at the end of the game. Oh, God, what are you going to do to him, Crook? I mean, if you're sucking Arteta, getting rid of Nunez and having a go at uh, poor old... uh, Who else were you having a go at? Um, Patrick Vieira. Uh, What are you going to say about Leon Bailey? Well, it was a shocker, wasn't it? Uh, I think Jim White uh, interviewed Ronnie Rosenthal on the breakfast show on Friday, and uh, it did bring back memories of that famous miss in the first Premier League season was against that Aston bad? Villa. But listen, he's <laughs> taking a bit of stick. Kev, it was quite bad. It was, it was bad. but it wasn't Ronnie it Rosenthal was bad. bad. There was no goalkeeper. There was no goalkeeper <laughs> here either. But he's taking a bit uh, of stick, hasn't he, for, for uh, Unai Emery's comments after the game about him crying over the miss. I think Emery's probably exaggerating that. But do you know what? I don't mind that. Oh, hold on, hold on. No, hold he on, was on, in on, tears. He was in tears. He was on the pitch, laying down with his hands on the edge of his uh, arms, crying, sobbing, his body vibrating behind him. I saw him do it, and he was down there for at least three or four was minutes. Was he crying over the miss, or was he crying over his Aston Villa career, which, let's be honest, hasn't been great? But I'm, I'm in favour of that show of emotion, because I think too often, and we're going to talk about Southampton in a minute, too often you see players who lose games or they miss opportunities and it doesn't affect them in the same way it affects the fans who are watching from the stands. The fact, that the fact was he was affected. Emery's point. That was Emery's point. His point was he cried good yeah. because he cares about it. That was Emery's point. He wasn't making a, a mockery of the fact that he was in tears. I spoke to Emery. Emery said, I said to him, what have you, what was he said to you after the game? He said, look, he's crying. But good because it means he feels it, he understands it. So I don't think there's. I, I listen. I listen. It's a bit. I think it was a bit over the top. At the end of the day, it wasn't a, a Champions League final. It wasn't a goal that stopped them from uh, winning the FA Cup. It wasn't a goal that got them relegated. It was, you know, it stopped them getting three points against Wolves. They're not going down Aston Villa. I mean, it was probably a little bit OTT, but you know, there we go. At least he's feeling it, and fans can't argue with the fact that he wants to be part of that team. Uh, we'll get to Southampton, Nottingham Forest. I know you're passionate about that as well, Crook, in just a second. Uh, but I'm passionate about Everton 1, Brighton 4. Uh, the talk the next day, Crook was texting me all day. Is he going to go? Is he going to go? Has he gone? Has he gone? Has he gone? And I said, no, he's not gone. He's not gone. He's not gone. Um, and we knew he wasn't going to go because it would be absolutely ludicrous for them to fire Frank Lampard. Whatever you think of Frank Lampard as a coach, bearing in mind they're the best defence in the Premier League up until about two weeks before the World Cup, um, whatever you think of them, 
as a coaching team, whatever you think. The truth of the matter here is, is that the big issue, and Everton fans should be annoyed about this, they should be wound up about this, is that their owner has spent far too much money on guff. They've spent so much time hiring, firing, clearing out players from previous managers. You're talking about a squad that is such a hodgepodge, um, Kevin, of former managers' cast-offs, that we're in a situation where Frank Lampard now can't spend any money because of FFP, right? Can bring in possibly two players that might make 3% difference between now and the end of the season. What on earth is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to do? Okay, coach the players a little bit better, make them a little bit tighter at the back, make them not... I mean, Tarkovsky with his Superman impression for that goal from... I can't remember who scored it. Was it... Um, Solly March, where he oh, yeah. fell over and then the third the sort of yeah. Superman thing. I mean, you know, what was he doing? But like, come on, be realistic. They're not, not going to sort this out by sacking the manager. No, I don't think they will. I think it's a bit of both. I, I think you're absolutely right. Lampard's hamstrung by the players at his disposal and the fact he can't really change it. So that's certainly true. I think he needs to do better in terms of how he sets them up. They did well against Manchester City defensively, no question about that. But they got schooled by Brighton. And the fourth goal for Brighton is one of the worst Premier League goals I have ever seen in my entire life. It starts with an atrocious free kick um, from McNeil. And then... Idrissa Garnagay, I, I don't know what he's doing. It's, and then he had the cheek to blame Pickford for it. Uh, just <laughs> atrocious. Absolutely awful. So there was a graphic on TV in midweek about all of the players that Everton have signed under Bashiri, 20 million plus. I mean, the list is just beyond belief. There's about three it's good frightening. ones. It's frightening. And what really stood out to me, actually, I was thinking about this, about in comparison with Brighton. With Everton... I reckon the average football fan of that whole list of 20 million plus signings, I reckon the average football fan would know most of them already. Like they'd arrive at the club and they go, oh, I know about him. He's been here or whatever. I reckon with Brighton signings, the average football fan hasn't got a clue who they are. And I think that's the difference because Brighton come up with guys and you go, where's he from? I've never heard of him. What's Everton will sign established players and some of them are in it for a payday. Not all of them, but some of them. And that's quite clear. So I know that's quite an, an allegation to make, but it comes back to what Crookie was saying about how much do they care? And when they get to a club like Everton, it's comfortable. It's a comfort zone. It's a club with delusions of grandeur that thinks it should be challenging for Europe. It was, it was a club that challenged in the 80s. It's been a hell of a long time since then. There's no divine right for them to be in the top half of the someone, table. Someone said on the Crook, on Crook show earlier this week that they that they, they that Frank Lampard um, should be fired because the, Everton aren't usually in a relegation battle. Beyond belief, I was I was like, what? Yeah. They're always in a relegation battle. Exactly, they've been in a relegation battle since 1995. I mean, it's it's been it's been non-stop. I mean, they've had a, the the odd season where they finished sort of challenging for the European places has been the odd season, but. Most 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 of the time, they start a season hoping to get forty points. First of all, I mean they are they are they are perennially in the bottom half of the table over the course of the the Premier League era. They're they're definitely more often than not in the bottom half of of the table. Talking of bottom halves of the table, in fact, talking of bottom of the table, Southampton were beaten at home by Nottingham Forest. Southampton beaten again. Now Crook did a huge rant in which he demanded that. Well, suggested that it was the right thing to get rid of Nathan Jones 
early, admit you've made a mistake and move on. Nathan Jones himself says, blame lies solely with me, which is a bit odd because he's only had about five games in charge. So it's not really actually his fault because he didn't sign any of the, the players in the summer and certainly wasn't part of this recruitment policy, which was buy cheap, sell uh, expensive, which hasn't worked out at all. Are they going to sack him, do you think, Crook? I think you would struggle to find any Southampton fan who would advocate him staying on. And I think it's a very difficult situation. There were so many empty seats at St Mary's on Wednesday night. There was so much apathy. There was so much toxicity, both at half-time and at full-time. And I think it's difficult. And I think the owners looking at those empty seats, that that's ultimately um, what helps make up people's minds. If they see the fans are staying away uh, and it hits the club in the pocket then I think they're going to be forced into a situation where they might have to make a change. They've got some big games coming up. The next game, I think it's live on TalkSport 2, is Everton away. If they lose that, that would be that would be a really difficult situation to see Nathan Jones coming back from. And what I did say in the rant, I don't necessarily blame Nathan Jones because I think he's been given a job that his credentials don't necessarily deserve. And I think he is struggling to get a tune out of these players. He played a back three at home to a Forest side and only scored one goal away from home all season. He persisted with that back three until the last 10 minutes of the match. They didn't have a single shot on target. It was very basic, the Southampton approach. Lump it upfield, more often than not straight into the gloves of Dean Henderson. And I didn't sense from the body language that the players are behind Nathan Jones. And these are similar stories to what we heard at Stoke City. But the difficulty is, if you do sack him, who's going to want that job? You know, who's going to want to be the third Southampton manager of the season with this young, inexperienced team? They're trying to address that in this transfer window. They've got Mislav Orsic pretty much through the door. They're looking at Michael Keane as well. I think they've realised, the owners, that the transfer policy that you've mentioned was a massive gamble. At the moment, it's one that isn't paying off. I don't see a way out for Southampton. I don't see a way out for Nathan Jones. Uh, 12 points from 17 matches. Nathan Jones... Um, Listen, he he obviously has some talent. Luton Town fans will tell you that. Two good spells there. The Southampton fans, not at all convinced. You don't know what you're doing was the chant at full time. Kevin, he, he obviously was never going to turn the opportunity to manage in the Premier League down. But is there an argument to suggest that actually he's made a mistake by accepting a job which was always going to be very difficult, even if you've got a lot more experience than Nathan Jones? This is a job for Sean Dyche, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think managers can't get to where he's got to. And this is rarefied air, a Premier League job. Let's not forget that. This is the, the pinnacle of English football. You can't get there unless you back yourself. Uh, and I, I don't think you know any manager in that position would turn it down. I, I think this is all on the club. And I know this is a bit of a Brighton loving, but it's true. When Potter went from Brighton, that wasn't something they wanted or necessarily foresaw in the sense that they thought Chelsea were going to come in and take their manager. However, it's quite clear they had a profile of manager they wanted to go for. They had a list of managers and Deserbi is similar to Potter in the way that he works. Different tactically in some ways, and we've seen that already, but broadly it's the same thing. Alex was telling me, you know, Alex is well connected at, at Southampton and in that area. And he knew and everybody and a lot of people knew that Harson Huddle was going long before he did in the sense that yeah. there'd be, you know, that that wasn't a massive secret. And it wasn't like, oh, wow, Harson Huddle's gone. So they had time. Where was that list? Because if there was a list, 
Nathan Jones shouldn't have been on that list. And that's not his fault, but you bring in a guy who's as intense and nervous as he is. Now, that can work if you've got time and if you can bring the players along with you. But I cannot believe anyone with any kind of foresight would have him on that list. And who else did they consider? So it all seems to have been a bit haphazard, uh, a bit off the cuff. And I've, I've got no faith, really, that if they made a change you know, they go into it with any kind of planning at all. It might succeed off the cuff and by accident almost, or we'll bring in Sean Dyche because he's a bit of a firefighter. But where's the planning? Where's the, it's crazy. But we'll see what happens when the Premier League resumes next week. We've got big games for you, including Everton against Southampton next Saturday. That's in about 10 days' time. But we've also got before that Fulham-Chelsea on a Thursday night. We'll look ahead to that uh, next week and the rest of the weekend's football as well so stick around uh, for that turn your notifications on on your phone and as soon as the podcast drop you will get it it's the game day podcast from Talksport. uh crookie's off to go and do uh, white and jordan again hello you're okay you still awake i'm good i'm good um, so hard P- P- perry groves has left the bed i can report so uh, all is well oh, great did he have a shower no so he's been in bed with you and didn't have a shower afterwards wowza I love the idea that there might have been a scenario that throughout the podcast, Perry was still in the bed. (laughs) Yeah, so do I. That's disturbing enough. I'm surprised he hasn't chirped. I'm surprised he hasn't chirped up with a few answers. (laughs) Um, Okay, so so you and and Perry still together or have you made a U-turn on that? No, we had a nice embrace when he left. So, uh, yeah, we've still got this bromance going on. But but listen, he's he's your bedfellow normally. So I I apologise, Sam. I'm not trying to steal him off you. (laughs) All right, this okay. has got really weird, right? <laughs> yeah, as he's descended into uh, <laughs> descended into an area in which I think we probably would need a BBFC classification. Uh, so we will move on and uh, see you next time on the Game Day Podcast. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 